I should introduce Chris. Chris is a professor at Goldsmiths at the Anomalistic Psychological Research Unit, APRU, which he helped set up there, which again looks very much at the paranormal and other anomalous and peculiar psychological and other phenomena. So Professor Chris French is our next speaker. What I'm going to open with uh, is a clip from uh, St. Richard's, the other St. Richard, not the one we've just seen, uh, St. Richard's Enemies of Reason program. Uh, this is a clip which shows a test of dousers which we carried out. Uh, some of you may have seen it. I wanted to start off with this clip, um, well, for various reasons. It kind of ticks all the boxes for the APRU, for the kind of research that we want to do. It's basically um, a test of dousers that we carried out during Science Week, uh, and then obviously the fact that it was then featured in the Enemies of Reason program meant that it went out to millions of people. It's a great way of trying to get out the idea, ideas about critical thinking. I think I'll just show you the clip and make a few comments about it afterwards. The so-called evidence for psychic phenomena is not robust, but will-o'-the-wisp. The more we look at it, the weaker it becomes. The alleged detection of water through dowsing is not obviously ridiculous. It might work, but does it? The only way to tell is through a rigorous experiment. How does dowsing work? That's the number one question, and nobody can answer you. Well, I reckon it's, I'm convinced that something is helping me to douse. One of the earlier chaps thinks it's God. How, how do you do it, then? How, what, what's your principle of dowsing? I think the question, and I expect God to respond in a way that I understand. I'm going to expect the right-hand one to point to the camera and the left-hand one straight forward. One... Yeah, OK. Look, Very look, good. it's following him round. Yeah. Have you done the test yet in the tent? Yes, I did. Yeah, and what, what was the result? I was going to get six right, 100%. Yeah, and what happened? One. So what do you make of that, then? He's having his laugh, isn't he? <laughs> he loves a joke. Yes. You don't realise. <laughs> Do I get second goes? Oh, yeah, you can have as many goes. The psychologist Chris French thinks there may be a simpler explanation. He has devoted his career to investigating claims of the paranormal. And now he has set up this test for dowsing, a properly controlled double-blind trial. In each of these rows, just one container, chosen at random, holds a bottle of water. All the rest contain sand. Neither the dowsers nor the tester are allowed to know where the water is until the boxes are opened. So there are no unintentional giveaways. Have another go. <laughs> Safeguards like this make the double-blind trial one of the crowning achievements of scientific reason. Okay, put it on the end one then. Number six, six again. I'd say so. Okay. Right. <laughs> What you'll typically find when you talk to dowsers is they'll give you lots and lots of anecdotal evidence, lots of stories about how they discovered a leak sure. in their, yeah. their neighbours' pipes and, and so on and so forth, but there are always other possible explanations there. Yes. What we're trying to do is set up conditions which would rule out yes. any of those other yes. explanations. But then we get down to the, the very fundamental basic issue, can the dowsers actually do what they think they can do? Yes. Okay. I think it's four. I think it's four. So, shall we see how well you've done? This is, this is sand. In that, case, in that case, I can't do this. This is the waters in number five. 
sand again. <laughs> this time, guess was bin number three. And this time water, you're correct. Well That's water. Sand. Yes, we're actually going to two possible words. Final trial, it's sand again, I'm In that case, I'm 100% wrong again. Uh, well, you've got one right on out of six, which is what we'd expect by chance. So far, they're performing pretty much in line with mean chance expectation, okay. in other words, guesswork. Yeah. So no one has scored more than yeah. two hits out yeah. of six. Three. Three. The people you've been testing, do they understand why they're being put through the double-blind procedure? I think once we've explained it to them, then they appreciate why someone who is perhaps sceptical or doubtful about their claims would see that that was necessary. What's interesting is it doesn't actually tend to dent their confidence at all. Which suggests that they're completely sincere. I, mean, that I think they, they are completely sincere. Yes. And that they're typically very, very surprised yes. when we run them through a series of trials and actually say at the end of the day, well, your performance is no better than would expect just on the basis of, of guesswork. And then what typically happens is they'll make up all kinds of reasons, yeah. some might say excuses, as to why they didn't pass that particular test. I feel the whole test is wrong. I'm shocked beyond words that this has happened. But I did say from the outset, couldn't we just sort out some grey blocks and some scaffold boards yeah. so that I can walk above it, which is what I would routinely do and I've yeah. done for 40 years. Yeah. Who knows where or what bottles were in what tubs. That's the whole point, the isn't it? That's I, the whole yeah, point. But if you understand dosing like I do, you'll understand that everything leaves an image. This state of denial is extraordinary. Even when confronted with hard fact, these dowsers prefer not to face up to truth, but retain their delusion. That was exactly the kind of exercise that we like to get involved in. It certainly wasn't rocket science. It was extremely simple in terms of, of an experiment. What it did was illustrate the importance of a fundamental scientific concept, the idea of a double-blind experiment. Dowsers, as any of you who have ever spoken to dowsers will know, are convinced that this works because of their own personal experiences. They'll give you all these amazing stories. When you ask them, would you be able to actually carry that out under control conditions, they are typically convinced that they could. One thing that they didn't show in the program was that with the test that we used, as you could see, we had either bottles of water or bottles of sand, and before we actually carried out the formal trials, we have open trials. So we got them with the dousing rods, bottle of water, bottle of sand. Can you differ differentiate between them? We get a nice big reaction over the water, we get nothing over sand. We then put them inside the containers in front of them and say, now can you still detect them? And we would find that we got a nice big response over the water, nothing over the sand. Then of course when you came to the proper double blind trials, where no one present knew which randomly selected container actually contained the water, then we actually test them and we find that their performance was exactly at chance level. One out of six overall, they simply couldn't do it. And of course one of the interesting things is that at the end of that exercise they didn't change their minds at all. So this was a nice way of getting out those ideas. Anomalistic psychology, the very first question then is what is it? Anomalistic psychology may be defined as the study of extraordinary phenomena of behaviour and experience, including but not restricted to those which are often labelled paranormal. It's directed towards understanding bizarre experiences that many people have 
without assuming a priori that there is anything paranormal involved. It entails attempting to explain paranormal and related beliefs and ostensibly paranormal experiences in terms of known or knowable psychological and physical factors. Why bother studying this stuff in the first place? The main reason is because these kinds of beliefs are so common. People do have weird experiences. Some opinion poll data in the States and over here, uh, one in every four Americans believes in ghosts, one in every four Americans believe they've had a telepathic experience, one in six Americans have felt that they've been in touch with someone who had died, one in ten claims to have been in the presence of or to have seen a ghost, more than half of the American population believe in the devil, and one in ten claim to have talked to the devil. One in seven say they have personally seen a UFO. Uh, three in four read their horoscopes in the newspaper, and one in four say they believe in astrology. So as far as the general public is concerned, the paranormal is real. For a long time, psychologists, with very few notable exceptions, I really had very little to say about where these beliefs and what the underlying experience is. Where do they come from? And so that's what anomalistic psychology is really all about. I noticed that Richard is the common factor when my talks go wrong, and I've only just thought about that. Oh, right, yes, I mean, a little bit of background about the anomalistic psychology research unit. There's the website. I founded it in the year 2000, so we've been going now for just over eight years. Um, Three main aims, research, say a little bit about that in the talk, formal education, so as part of our degree program there is an option in anomalistic psychology, and public education. And so particularly, obviously all these three interact, so carrying out research with dowsers is one way of actually dealing with all three of those, ticking all three boxes. And the, the, the research that we want to continue to do is not just testing whether or not dancers can really do what they say they can do, because the evidence pretty overwhelmingly seems to suggest they can't. It's looking at the reasons behind it, the psychology behind it. So as most of you will know, dowsing is best explained, in or belief in dowsing and the experience of dowsing is best explained in terms of the idiomotor effect, non-conscious muscular movements. Uh, and we've got a series of experiments that we're carrying out at the moment looking at that side of it. Okay, now the fact that Levels of paranormal belief and reports of paranormal experience are so common in our own society, in all other societies, both historically and geographically, can only mean one of two things. Either paranormal forces really do exist. If they do, then scientists ought to accept that, get on with it and try and study them, the same way that they study everything else. Or alternatively, we can learn a lot about human psychology. If, when people have ostensibly paranormal experiences, in fact, they are better explained in psychological terms, then that will tell us an awful lot about human psychology. So either way, they're worth taking seriously. In terms of the research that we do at the Anomalistic Psychology Research Unit, uh, basically we've reviewed lots of pre-existing uh, research literature, so relating to things like near-death experiences, alien abduction claims, sleep paralysis, cognitive factors underlying paranormal belief and experience, and memory for anomalous experiences and the placebo effect, but we also carry out original research. So I want to give you a few examples of the kinds of things that we did. One example would be an experiment we published in 2002 where we had participants engage in what they thought was a computerized test of ESP. 
So um, they believed that they were taking part in a precognition task. And if you were taking part in this study, would have sat you down in front of a computer and said, right, the computer is going to randomly select one of five symbols. You know the Xena card symbols, three wavy lines, a cross, and so on. And we want to see if you can guess which one the computer is going to choose. And what, they, what you then see would be a pattern come up on the screen, like the back of a playing card, that kind of pattern. Um, and what we didn't tell the participants was that on half of the trials, we were actually subliminally priming them with the correct answer. Because the basic hypothesis was that maybe sometimes when people think they're making decisions on the basis of psychic intuition, they're actually picking up information without consciously realizing it. So on half the trials, the correct answer was subliminally primed. On the other half, it wasn't. We checked that very carefully to make sure that they really couldn't uh, consciously see the information. What we found was that the high transliminals, this is a, transliminality is a psychological concept. It correlates closely with, with paranormal belief and experience. The, uh, the high transliminals got more hits than you would expect by chance, but only on the primed trials. So in other words, they would, they would assume, they didn't, didn't do any better on the non-primed trials, and the low transliminals were, not, were scored at chance level on both. But it would seem perfectly reasonable for those people who are getting more right than chance would predict, but not knowing why, to think, well, maybe I am psychic. So that was some kind of evidence that supported the notion that maybe sometimes we think we're basing our decisions on psychic intuition when, in fact, we're picking up the information from elsewhere. No evidence of ESP, I'm afraid. One of the factors that we've got very interested in recently is uh, looking at eyewitness testimony. Because very often, obviously, when you are looking at paranormal claims, you're not looking directly at the evidence itself. You're looking at people's reports of what they say they witnessed, what they say happened. And so obviously, how reliable that kind of information actually is, is crucially important. Now, um, there is, there's a huge amount of literature that shows in a forensic context, you know, with staged crimes and that kind of thing, that people are can be very, very unreliable, uh, particularly when you witness something that you weren't expecting, that you maybe weren't even focusing on in terms of attention, as Richard was talking about earlier. Um, you maybe will actually give an account that's actually quite misleading. Now, okay, so that's probably not too surprising, but even memory for simple everyday stimuli that you've maybe encountered thousands and thousands of times can also be inaccurate. And this is a demonstration which some of you may have seen before. The question is, on clocks and watches with Roman numerals on their face, how is the number four represented? Is it as the clock there on the left, I, 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 or with the clock there on the right, I, V? How many people think it's as the clock on the left, I, 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 I? How many people think it's I, V? Well, I'm pleased to say that even with a mega skeptical audience like yourselves, most of you were wrong. On clocks and watches, and for some bizarre reason it seems on, only on clocks and watches, as far as I can tell, on the vast majority of clocks and watches with Roman numerals, the four is represented as I, 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 I. And what this illustrates is something called top-down processing, the way that your own beliefs and expectations will influence what you think you remember. We, did, we carried out controlled studies um, of this particular phenomenon where we actually get people, we show them the clock, that is in fact our clock, um, we show them the clock and either get them to 
copy it while it's directly in front of them, in which case people get it right, or copy it from memory. And it doesn't matter whether you warn them they're going to have to do that or not, they get it wrong when they do it from memory, because what they actually write down is what they think they must have seen, rather than what they actually did see. So it's an everyday illustration of the way that your own beliefs and expectations can influence such things. Another thing we've looked at is a phenomenon known as memory conformity. This is a phenomenon whereby testimony of one eyewitness can actually influence what somebody else thinks they see. So if you've got two people who think they've seen a UFO and one of them just saw some kind of strange light in the sky out of the corner of their eye, but the other one is giving a very detailed, vivid description of what they think they saw, that can actually affect the other person's memory. We uh, replicated an experiment reported by Richard and Emma Greening. It's an interesting experiment in itself, looking at the effects of verbal suggestion. What uh, Richard and Emma did was to show a, um, a video clip of a, an alleged psychic doing a little bit of Yuri Geller-type spoon-bending. Now, um, the interesting bit comes when the spoon, having been bent by sleight of hand, is placed down on the table, and half the participants hear the verbal suggestion, if you look closely, it's still bending. The other half don't hear that verbal suggestion. Of those who do, around about 40% report that it carries on bending. Of those who don't get the suggestion, virtually no one does. So it's a very robust effect with a very, very simple manipulation. We replicated that effect, but we also put in a memory... We're, we're, unlike Richard, in our data, the believers in the paranormal were more susceptible to the verbal suggestion. We put in a memory conformity element. We had a stooge subject who either said, yes, it did carry on bending, or no, it didn't. And that also had an additive effect. So if you've got the verbal suggestion and the confederate saying, yes, it did carry on bending, 60% of those people, when they were asked on their own in private, said that the, the key, in fact, that we, we used a key in this experiment, the key carried on bending. Another experiment on a similar kind of idea, I was interested in the fact that lots of things that correlate with susceptibility to false memories, this is not distorted memories now, this is memories, people have memories for things, or apparent memories, for things that never happened at all. Um, and I was in, it was interesting in reviewing the data that things that correlate with susceptibility to false memories in various situations also correlate with the tendency to believe in the paranormal and to report paranormal experiences. So this raises the possibility that at least some of those things are actually, so some of those reports are based on false memories. So we, we carried out the experiment looking at this. We gave 100 participants what we said was a news coverage questionnaire. A bit like those ads that have been on the BBC recently of where were you when this dramatic news footage was first being broadcast. If I were to say to you, where were you, who were you with, what were you doing when you saw the footage of the Twin Towers collapsing for the first time, I think most of you would feel very confident that you could actually remember. So it looked like that's what we were looking at. In fact, we gave four items that related to actual news footage. One of the items on our questionnaire, though, had not been caught on camera. It was the first bar bombing of a bar... A little bit of, the first barley bombing. Um, and we asked people, where were you, who were you with, what were you doing when you, with the CCTV footage when you first saw it? There is no such footage. But in line with other research, we found that about over a third of our participants said they could remember. They were quite happy to give us all those details. They were quite happy to tell us whether the footage was in colour or black and white whether it was good quality, whether there was a commentary with it. There is no such footage. The interesting thing is, those individuals who said yes, they could remember it, scored higher on measures of paranormal belief and experience. 
and we have replicated that effect. Another example of the kind of research we've done, obviously I'm only touching on various things to give you a feel of kind of an overall as a whirlwind trip, I know. Um, a study we've kind of, uh, published recently um, looked at the psychological profiles of people who claim to have had alien contact experiences and compared that with a control group. The control group actually included my mum because she fitted the profile that we wanted in terms of age and gender. She does not think she's been abducted by aliens. Um, what we found, again, this is linking the whole, the whole idea with are they more, do they have the kind of psychological profile that would make them susceptible to false memories? Our experiences scored higher than the match controls on incidents of sleep paralysis, but also on dissociativity, absorption, fantasy proneness, and measures of paranormal belief and experience, all of which are known to correlate with susceptibility to false memories. The only fly in the ointment was that we didn't replicate the findings of a Harvard group of psychologists who'd found that people who reported alien abductions also were more susceptible on a direct measure. I won't go into the details because I'm, I know I'm a bit short of time. We did not find any differences on that. But the overall profile certainly seemed to fit. Another project which uh, is currently in press, this time again, this was carried out uh, in collaboration with various people, including Usman Hack, who is a, describes himself as an architect. He's a very intelligent, creative person. Again, we needed to, the help from mothers in this project because uh, what we were interested in, you've probably come across this idea that complex electromagnetic fields and infrasound, I haven't even got time to define these things, I realise, um, can actually lead in susceptible people to them having hallucinatory experiences. This is based on measurements from various haunted, lo supposedly haunted locations, um, which to give, there is some kind of evidence. I wouldn't say it's conclusive, but it, there might be something in this idea. It's an interesting one. What we thought was, if this is true, if certain people are affected by these complex electromagnetic fields or by infrasound, wouldn't it be neat if we built an artificial haunted room? So we kind of built this specially constructed chamber. Where Usman's mum helped out was that we didn't know where we were going to put it, so we put it in her front room. Uh, so for three months she had this. <laughs> her front room taken over by this um, artificial haunted room. We got people to go in there, spend 50 minutes. We had to, for ethical reasons, it was all safe, but we had to, for ethical reasons, say, you might be exposed to infrasound, you might be exposed to complex electromagnetic fields, you might be exposed to both, or you might be exposed to neither. But obviously, they didn't know what condition they were in. And the question was, would we find that people report, would report weird experiences like a sense of presence or a shiver down the spine or changes in temperature, the kind of things that people report in haunted locations. We had 79 volunteers who spent 50 minutes in there. They recorded any unusual sensations they had and we got quite a, a high um, rate of such uh, sensations. Like about a quarter of our sample reported a sense of presence. About 10% reported terror, which rather surprised us. Um, and a whole range of other experiences. The interesting thing was, when we analysed the data, it was unrelated to condition. didn't matter what condition you were in. What it was related to was the scores on the temporal lobe signs inventory, because the idea is that this, these things are caused by acti unusual activity in the temporal lobes, which is caused by these environmental factors. We found that it was related to scores on the, on the temporal lobe sign scale. Unfortunately, that scale is known to correlate with suggestibility. So the most plausible explanation is just that because we had suggested to some people, 
you might actually experience this weird stuff the more suggestible ones had, which is kind of quite interesting from a psychological point of view, but not really, you know, we would have liked to have found support for the, the more kind of esoteric hypothesis there. Right, something um, we've got interested in recently, I'm going to try and show another clip now, uh, if I can. Um, and again, quite often, a lot of this stuff happens because we get involved in some kind of TV program. We did some kind of, so I did some research with a colleague of mine called Patrick Lehman on the psychological factors underlying belief in conspiracy theories. You'll note the definition that I gave at the end, at the beginning, um, actually said that we don't, we, we don't restrict ourselves just to the paranormal because we want to kind of be able to look at all kinds of weird stuff. And obviously, belief in conspiracy theories is quite a popular topic. Now, for this one, neither Patrick's mum was available nor was my mum. So this is a mumless study. Um, it's just about made up for it by the fact that we've got some very, very dramatic movement and camera shots as we start off. I think this is, you'll see why this is relevant to scepticism. I'll just show it you and then make a few comments. Professor Chris French and Dr. Patrick Lehman are two of the world's authorities on conspiracy thinking and they think that they might know what's going on. As psychologists, we're not principally interested in whether one particular conspiracy theory is true or, or one other, another one isn't. We're interested ultimately in, in a psychological perspective, which is why do people believe in these and why do people not believe in them? Both Chris and Patrick strongly believe that some people are more likely to believe in conspiracies than others. Incredibly, they also think that they can predict who those people are. To find out if they were right, they decided to conduct an experiment. Okay, guys, thank you for coming. Um, on the table in front of you is a sheet of paper, and I want you to fill that sheet of paper in now. There's a, a series of questions. Um, at the start, if you can put a little bit of a, information about you, and then just answer those questions in the way that you feel. Okay. 30 students took part. None of the questions relate to conspiracies. Instead, they test three other psychological factors that Chris and Patrick predict will go hand in hand with a belief in conspiracy theories. If you have low levels of trust in the people around you, if you feel alienated from society, and if you're quick to make false assumptions based on partial evidence, then Chris and Patrick predict you will be more likely to believe in conspiracy theories. With the papers in, it was time to pick two groups, made up of the people with the six highest and the six lowest scores. What I want to do now, the success of the whole experiment rested on how the groups reacted to a brand new conspiracy that Chris and Patrick had invented themselves. The government is using mobile phone technology to track everyone all the time. Okay, so do you think that the government is using that technology to track where you are at different times? That's the statement. What do you think about that? If their theory was right, Patrick's group would be more likely to believe the mobile phone conspiracy, while Chris's would be more sceptical. And this is the thing that we want to know at the end of the day, whether you'd agree with this or disagree with it or you don't know. The government is using mobile phone technology to track everyone all the time. I don't, I strongly don't agree with that. Yeah. I mean, why would they want to? The government would be out in no time. 
simple fact is the statement was watching everybody, and I don't believe they're watching everybody, but they can watch the people they need to watch. So. I don't think they do it with bad intentions or as a violation of our rights. Violation of our rights if they take advantage of it when we haven't done anything wrong. But can you think of the huge computer system yeah. it would require to have every single person in the country's whereabouts on the, the system? The logistics of it is it's completely just incapable of being, and especially the government, there's no way they can pull it off. It's way too conspiracy theory for me to agree with. Chris's group were looking every bit as sceptical as the scientists had predicted. So would Patrick's group be any more conspiratorial? I'm not sure if they bug conversations, but I'm sure they must be able to pinpoint you are somewhere on the globe to, like, 30 metres. Yeah. And also the mobile phone companies can track where you are, and the police can do that as well. They might, they might look at um, people in general, like, if, 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 they're, if they're being normal, if their no behaviour is normal. But then if they deviate from this behaviour, they might... I don't know, track them a bit more cautiously and, and have a look at them deeper. They might not have a purpose to track everyone, but as soon as they have the opportunity to and the ability to, then I, I would suspect that they would quite happily buy into that. It would be nice to, to do a vote now and see what you all think. Can you hold your phone up if you think that it's very likely or quite likely that the government is using this technology to track where everyone is all the time? Hold it up if you agree that that's quite likely. So we've just got the votes in, and all six people think that it is quite likely. So how would Chris's group vote? Is there anybody who feels that they think that this is a possibility, that the government is using mobile phone technology to track everyone all the time? No. The simple answer is they don't do it. How many would say one? Certainly not. And there's a quick show of hands. OK, so one, two, three, four, five out of the six of you would say certainly not. OK, so when it came to actually getting the group to discuss this statement, we've got a very clear consensus emerging. Five out of the six people in this group thought that was definitely not true, and the remaining person thought that it was unlikely. So it's a very, very clear judgment there from this group that they don't think this is happening. The experiment was a resounding success. It seems that trust, alienation, and the evidence on which you base your opinions are key to determining whether or not you will believe in conspiracies. Now, but I should, one thing I should emphasize is I would not describe that as an experiment. It was not an experiment. But what it was was quite an interesting little exercise, a demonstration. Um, and we would like to kind of take we also got data there from a kind of an online study of over a thousand people with some really interesting results, uh, and we would actually like to take that forward. I mean, the psychology of belief in conspiracies has been is obviously kind of quite an important hot topic, and it's one that again has been relatively neglected. But there are signs that social psychologists and other psychologists are getting interested in that. I want to say anything more about that. I want to make sure I've got time for everything. So as I said, the. Um, Three kind of aims of the Anomaly Psychology Research Unit do tend to interplay. If we look at teaching on its own, I think Anomaly Psychology is a great topic because it hooks students in. People, whether they're believers or skeptics, usually find this kind of topic very interesting and intriguing. It's the kind of thing people talk about in the pub or at dinner parties. So they're already interested and you can kind of take advantage of that. At one extreme, you're dealing with the most kind of profound issues that, that face us. You know, what's the nature of consciousness? Do we survive bodily death? All these really, really important issues. At the other extreme, you've got the kind of really fun stuff. You've got the kind of thing that we just 
seen in Richard's demonstrations were the techniques used by deliberate con artists, you've got the psychology of self-deception, all really fascinating and interesting stuff. So it's a, it's a wonderful topic. Um, it brings at home to students and hopefully the wider public the importance of assessing different types of evidence. It's a very, very human thing to say, you know, I believe that because I saw it with my own eyes. But again, a lot of the kind of demonstrations that Richard has shown us and that psychologists more generally have come up with show that you can't always trust your own eyes. You actually have, that's, and that's the thing with science, that's why you need a scientific approach. It shows the pitfalls of human cognition in kind of very interesting ways. And hopefully what we're trying to do is to get across the idea of true scepticism. It's not an uninformed, bigoted, prejudiced form of scepticism that says, I know the paranormal doesn't exist, I know it's all rubbish, I don't need to look at the evidence. Yes, you do need to look at the evidence and then form an informed opinion. One of the things I'm really very, very pleased about is anomalistic psychology is now included on the A-level syllabus for psychology. So thousands and thousands of kids every year are going to be exposed to this stuff and I would hope and I would expect that that would actually you know, get them really, really interested in these things. And that's going to have ripple effects then so that more and more universities will start putting on these courses. There are a handful at the moment and it is growing, but I'm very, very excited about that. Okay, other things that we do to try and promote this kind of thing, we have our own invited speaker series. Do come along to them, they're free, you don't have to book in advance. Our next speaker is Richard's best friend, Rupert Sheldrake. Uh, we've also got Nick Pope, Simon Singh, Julian Magini and Bernard Carr lined up for this term. If you go to our website, if you sign up on the Psychology of the Paranormal email list, we'll keep you informed of those and other events. And, for example, I know for a fact that Simon Singh and Bernard Carr's dates are going to change, so we can inform you of things like that as well. The skeptics in the pub, I'll give those a plug as well. We, we support them by kind of publicising their activities. We take part in what they're doing. That's at the Pendrels Oak near Hoban Tube. There's the website. Tonight, there's a big social event there because it's the 10th anniversary. Skeptics in the pub has been going now for 10 years under various um, people organising, currently Sid Rodriguez. Um, on Monday, the speaker is Rebecca Watson of Skeptic. And there are new branches opening Leeds, Leicester and Birmingham. So it's spreading around the country. And in terms of... Um, Again, getting the message out there. Taking part in TV programs is a good way to do that. So very often, members of the unit provide a sceptical perspective. We took part in um, Tony Robinson's recent programs, The Blitz Witch and The Ghosts of Glastonbury. We do quite a lot of research testing psychic claimants. So we tested Derek Ogilvie, the uh, baby mind reader. This is the guy who claims that he can actually read babies' minds. And he's not just going to tell you uh, oh, I'm hungry, or oh, I've pooed myself. Um, he can tell you, apparently, about the family issues, about what car they drive, about relationships, about their friends, etc., etc., which is pretty amazing. These are pre-verbal babies a lot of the time. Anyway, we did, a, we did a test of him. We got him to do his stuff under properly controlled conditions. So ob the obvious alternative explanation is that he's possibly unintentionally, I would think he, he is un unintentionally, using cold reading. So we got him to do six readings for six children, but without the parents in the room. We then invited the parents back the next day, and we said, right, here are the six readings. Choose the one that, that matches your child. If Derek could really do what he thinks he could do, that ought to be a doddle. 
and I believe that was reported to me anecdotally that uh, on the way down to do the test, he reported that it would be a, quote, a piece of piss, unquote. Uh, by chance, we'd expect one hit out of six. We got one hit out of six. Poor Derek was in tears afterwards, and to really rub it in, he was off the next day to Florida to be tested by Randy. <laughs> he got chance score in that test as well. Um, Chris Robinson, the dream detective, this is the guy who claims he can tell you where he is going to be. He can dream about the future in one aspect of that, very specifically, so he can dream what will be happening, what he will be doing, say, Tuesday of next week. He says he can tell that from his dreams. Now, that's good, because that means you can test that. So we set up an experiment whereby we took him, we had it arranged that we would randomly select various locations, we would take him there at pre-specified times, and we got someone else to independently judge which of those locations was the best match to his dreams. Uh, he again didn't pass the test, although he was convinced due to subjective validation that the place we did take him to really did match his dreams. And again, that's an insight into the psychology. Dowsers we've already mentioned. I'm not going to inflict a clip of Britain's psychic challenge on you. I did think about it, but I thought, no, you probably, it would upset you. But actually, I'm going to do something that's equally bad. Um, I'm going to show you a few clips from Haunted Homes, yes. Now, I've stopped now talking science, okay? The science was the first bit. We're now on, I know I've taken part in some really dreadful programs, and I'm sorry, but they pay me, it's fun, uh, and actually, you can actually get quite an insight. I mean, on an anecdotal level, actually watching the way that people interact in these so-called haunted locations is really interesting, because you realize that nothing actually happens other than in their own heads. Now, um, unlike yeah, I mean, Mia Dolan, who was the psychic who took part in these programs, is, I mean, I really like her. She's mad as a box of frogs, but she's honest and sincere, and she really believes in what she's doing. And therefore, nothing was ever faked on those programs, which is the reason that nothing ever really happened on them, which is the reason we didn't get a third series. Um, but what you did see was the way that they'd interact, the way that Mia was very good at kind of getting people psyched up. And so she'd start seeing things, and a lot of them would report that they could see them as well. They never showed up on camera. Well, again, I'll take that back. There's one exception where we did actually manage to record something, not on camera, but we recorded a sound. Now, to give you a bit of background to the clips I'm going to show you, this was uh, an investigation at uh, the Beacon radio station in the Midlands, which is allegedly haunted. And amongst the various things that people had reported happening, um, it was reported that people had heard children singing the nursery rhyme Ringa Ringa Roses, and people had heard sneezing sounds. So I'll just show you what happened. This is the first clip I'm going to show you is a video diary taken by two of the guys who work in this place. Um, it's only a short clip. Um, but something actually quite interesting happens while they're actually recording this video diary. Their fears were even captured on a video diary, which they filmed by themselves one night. Is there anybody here? Andy tries to make contact with the spirit, much to John's disapproval. Make contact with us? Any spirit people? Any spirit children? Oh my... Okay, we thought we just heard like a sneeze noise. Where was it? It's around the corner. Okay. Somebody went there. 
Are there any... Shit, that's the ringer in your roses thing. And I thought maybe this sneezing noise was to do with the Victorian nursery rhyme they hear with the ringer ringer roses, and it just scared me to death. Okay, so what you got there was they actually heard that sneezing sound while they were doing the video diary. Now, the next clip I'm going to show you is after we'd arrived on the scene, the first night, they always have a vigil. They learned very early on that if I was... Think, ooh, then nothing happened. You know, you got this kind of sceptic saying, nah, nah, it's your central heating, it's cooling down. No, I can't see anything over in that corner. No, really dampen the atmosphere. So they learned to put me outside in the Winnebago, watching everything on remote TV screens, you know, cameras inside. Anyway, this was the vigil um, on, on, the, on the night, as I say, and uh, something, again, something interesting happens. Remember the ghostly sneeze. Mm-hmm. got a situation there where twice it's been recorded. Now, being a good paranormal investigator, Mark Webb had lots of little EVP recording devices dotted around the place, hoping to pick up spirit voices. And guess what? The sneeze had actually been recorded, and the time codes match. So uh, I'll show you the next clip where you've got the smart-ass skeptic trying to explain his way out of this one. The following day, Mark believes he has recorded conclusive evidence on his equipment. Having reviewed the mini discs that were recorded like yesterday evening, um, I've now found the sound of a, what I believe was a sneeze. Uh, at the time, myself and Julia were sat on the landing area, and we too believe that that's what we heard. In the case of the the sneezing, which. Mark actually thought he heard himself last night, and he's actually he's played that recording back to me. I have to say, to me, it sounds like something that might be a sneeze, but it might be 101 other things as well. And I think this is a general problem with the EVP, the electronic voice phenomenon, that it's very, very easy for people to read into those very, very ambiguous sounds, whatever it is they think they're supposed to be hearing. Okay, so we've got to the point where they definitely recorded something and it did sound like a sneeze. So was this the first objective evidence of a sneeze from the other side? Well, what we do with the programme, we've provided a public service. We don't just investigate your ghost, we actually get rid of it for you. So the second night was always the clearing. Um, we were just getting ready for the clearing and I decided to, to pop to the loo on the landing where this noise had been recorded and as I came out from the cubicle, Mark Webb, the paranormal investigator, was standing there with a very concerned expression on his face, looking at something on the wall and I followed his gaze. Was this 
ectoplasmic snot. You know, we, it was going to be a fantastic breakthrough for psychical research. No, it was an automatic air freshener. <laughs> we hung around in the gents, as you do, um, and we waited till it went off, and no doubt at all, that was the noise that had been recorded that they got so excited about. So the next clip I'd like to show you is the clip of me and Mark talking to camera, explaining that this was definitely not a ghost, this definitely was something with a much more down-to-earth explanation. That's the next clip I would like to show you, if it existed, but of course it doesn't. So the programme made a huge thing out of this ghostly sneeze and didn't feature the explanation at all. You know, we know with absolute certainty what that noise was. No ghost. It was an automatic air freshener. <laughs> 